0: I mean, I guess that's what makes it so funny, right? We can all relate to the fact that Christmas can be so chaotic, and I'm surprised, I don't know, whichever insurance company it is that has the chaos guy, I'm surprised they don't do something like that. But in the weeks of the Advent season, the weeks that, that lead up to uh, the pinnacle of our, our celebration of the birth of Jesus, one of the, one of the many things uh, that we think about and that we sing about is peace which is kind of funny because it's so chaotic. It's all the, the stuff that we pollute and, and convolute the Christmas season with that seem to render it anything but peaceful. You probably know what I'm talking about. Levels of stress, according to survey after survey, just skyrocket in December. In fact, it, you know, it's all these other things that we pollute. The Christmas season, with that, actually, probably make it about the least peaceful time of the year for most people, even while we're, we're singing and we're thinking about peace. Crazy. But even throughout the year, peace is something that people are talking about, people desire, but I think maybe it would be true to say that few actually expect, like, real peace. It's almost like this. Long forgotten ideal that has been something that we've chased in the past, but we, it, it's just failed so many times. It's just easier to give up on the idea, maybe especially around Christmas time, because of all the chaos, because of all the things that we pollute the season with. But at Christmas time, especially, our minds are supposed to be brought back to the idea of peace. We don't want chaos, right? Anybody in here like the chaos of the season? Nobody likes it. Nobody. I mean, we don't want the chaos. We don't want conflict. And yet there's a lot of conflict around Christmas. We want peace to be the one word that would describe our family gatherings. But so often, there's a degree of conflict in there somewhere. We have so many things that pull us away from peace and draw us into chaos or or conflict to some degree or another. And human history attests to the fact that war is actually the hallmark of humanity. You might even say that it's part of what defines the human race, and apart from Christ, maybe that's true. Maybe conflict is our signature attribute. But even apart from the idea or the reality of conflict between people, peace is such a difficult concept to grasp. How often are we at odds with just even within our, with our own selves? How often are we uncomfortable within our, our own skin? Joe McQueen, he's a writer for the New York Times and GQ magazine. He criticizes what he calls our culture's, quote, inability to accept the ordinary. our our culture's inability to accept the ordinary. And he insists, uh, he he says that we insist that, quote, every experience be a watershed, every meal be extraordinary, every friendship, epochal, every concert, superb, every sunset, meta-celestial, nothing can ever be exactly what it is in the first place, ordinary, end quote. And if you doubt him, if you need proof of, of what he's saying, open your Facebook feed. Oh, oh, look at Facebook. I mean, you don't want to post anything absolutely ordinary on there, do you? And, and people don't. People, people post things that make it look like, man, I am just living the life. Because they don't want to be ordinary. Why, why would anybody want to post something ordinary on Facebook? How impressive is ordinary? How are you going to cause somebody else to covet your life if, you, if it just looks ordinary? One of the things that I think social media does is it compels us to view ordinary life as just boring and less than noteworthy. Christian author Michael Horton wrote a book called Ordinary, And he responds to this mentality that swept over our culture, writing this. He says, quote, Today we feel the pressure to have our weddings look like the cover of a bridal magazine or movie set. Our marriages have to be made in heaven, even though they're very much on earth. Our presentations at work have to dazzle. Our kids have to make the dean's list and get into the best graduate schools. Nothing short of brilliant and groundbreaking will satisfy if you want a good job. When we do stop, and smell the roses. It has to be an unforgettable package at an amazing resort. It's not enough to enjoy recreation at the public park. But extreme sports are what really interest us. End quote. And if there's one time of year. When we feel the pressure of these high expectations to, to have that facade. A desire to have an, and, and portray just an extraordinary life experience. It's during the Christmas season. This is the season in which we're most likely to take that burden upon ourselves of playing the role, of wearing the facade of this perfect life that's extraordinary in every way. And I just want to say, guys and girls, it is so perfectly fine. It is so acceptable to have an average, non-spectacular Christmas season and a non-spectacular, very ordinary Facebook feed. And instead, I I want to divert your attention and bring it back to where it belongs. I want to urge you to focus on the gift of peace that Christ came to bring. Now, as we continue our Rediscovering Christmas series this morning, my hope is that you'll walk away with a deeper understanding, a deeper ap- uh, appreciation for the third reason that Jesus stepped out of eternity. The first is to give us life. The second is to build his church. That's what we've covered. No, no specific order necessarily. But the third is to bring peace. That's one of the many, many reasons that Jesus stepped out of eternity, took on flesh and became a man to bring peace. And maybe part of the reason that so many have given up on peace is because they were asking just the wrong questions about peace. So you can focus on what peace looks like externally, what, just what it looks like on, on the surface, and you can completely forget about or overlook what peace even means or where chaos and conflict ultimately flow out of. And that's a question that James, the half brother of Jesus, asked. He had this to say in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He said, What causes quarrels and fights among you? What causes the chaos? What causes the conflicts? He says, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Your desire, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, I don't know about you, but, uh, and maybe it's just because it's the season, but when I read that, I was like, that sounds like Black Friday. <laughs> you know, it's like James got this vision of, you know, 2,000 years in the future, and he, he sees these people trampling each other. He's like, oh, I, I know what's going on here. We see videos, and we hear these stories of people, you know, of that happening, where they get trampled as they're trying to rush in to get the material possessions that they covet the most. There was once a Peanuts cartoon. It was always one of my favorite cartoons. My dad had books of them. My grandma had books of them. I used to love Peanuts. And there was one cartoon with Lucy saying to Charlie Brown, I hate everything. I hate everybody. I hate the whole wide world. Everybody ever have one of those days? We all have those days, right? I hate everybody. I hate the whole wide world. Charlie Brown responds by saying, but I thought you had inner peace. And Lucy says back to him, I do have inner peace, but I have outer obnoxiousness. (laughs) The truth that James is trying to share with us here, the the principle that he's drawing on, is that the, the external flows from the internal. What's external? The things that are on the surface, it all flows from the internal. And it's the same principle that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 15, verse 18, when he said that what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Chaos exists externally whenever chaos exists internally. Conflict exists externally whenever conflict exists internally. And conversely, Where peace exists internally, it will also be seen externally. The truth is that springs of peace have never and will never flow from the murky and polluted well of the unregenerate human heart. And yet one of the things that the prophet Isaiah said when he wrote about the coming of the Messiah was that the Messiah would extend peace like a river. That's what he said in Isaiah chapter 66 verse 12 that the Messiah would extend peace like a river. In other words, more peace than you could ever possibly need. In one of the most famous prophetic passages about the coming of the Messiah, he wrote this, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. It's one of the, verses, one of the passages that we focus on during the Christmas season. He wrote, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Without God's peace, without the peace that the Messiah, Jesus, brings, the world can be a very, very chaotic, very violent place, both internally and externally. And it can make for an absolutely miserable human existence. But the Messiah Jesus Christ was so marked by peace that we're told that one of the things his name would be called is the prince of peace see humanity wants peace they strive for peace they talk about peace they fantasize about peace and what that would all look like but the problem is that they want peace without the prince the unbeliever would be wise To heed the warning that the Lord issues, in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 22, Isaiah writes this. He says, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked. In one of the most famous scenes in the entire Bible, fast forward 500, 600 years after Isaiah, an angel shows up at the time of Christ's birth and he's announcing to these shepherds out in a field that the time for the Messiah has arrived, that the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 is, is arrived. And after the announcement is made, we read this, Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. By the way, that means there are thousands. You've got angel armies just lined up around them. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now this is one of those verses that gets people really confused. The King James translation uh, of this, this hymn that the angels are singing has caused a lot of confusion. Going going back to to Peanuts, everybody's seen the the Peanuts Christmas special, right? It's one of the most famous Christmas specials. You guys have probably seen it. But Linus, um, he quotes from the KJV, and he reads uh, this. He says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. In other words, just toward men in general is what that sounds like. And we can be sure that this translation falls far short of being accurate when we, first of all, look at what Isaiah said about the wicked, having no peace. But also consider what Jesus said. He said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. But the very heart of the gospel message is peace. But that peace is only known. It's only understood. It's only grasped and experienced by those who have peace with God. It's only experienced by the righteous. Peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. To whom is this peace extended? Maybe the better question is, with whom is he pleased? Or maybe an even better question is, what pleases God? Faith does. Faith does. That's what Hebrews chapter eleven, verse six tells us. It tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, if you're a philosopher, you would call faith a necessary condition for pleasing God. Just like if you want to build a fire, you need what? You need three things, Eric. Right? What are they? Oxygen. Oh, sorry, he's taking a drink. <laughs> you need oxygen and fuel, and air. Air. You need. Yeah. Yeah, oxygen, fuel, and ignition, and heat, that's right. So just like uh, you can't have a fire without all three of those things. Those are necessary conditions. And, and similarly, you can't please God without having faith. It's a necessary condition. It must be there to please God. And that's what our righteousness is based on. It's based on faith. Our righteousness isn't our own. It's Christ's. He gives it to us. Through faith. Christmas is about remembering that Jesus came to bring peace to his people. Sorry about ruining your drink of coffee there. <laughs> faith in God is the key to understanding the peace that Christmas is all about. And Paul explains how that works for us in the fifth chapter of Romans, which is where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 5. Uh, And I promise not to take you away from there for for the rest of our time this morning. It's been a long time since I've preached out of Romans. I did uh, about a a five-and-a-half-year study in Romans, and I don't think I've preached out of Romans directly since then. But Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2a say this. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, whenever we come to the word therefore, it tells us something. We have to look back. We have to reflect back on the text to see what it's there for. Uh, It represents a turning point which is built upon previous points which have already been established. So just to summarize, Paul went to great lengths in chapter 3 of Romans to show that the whole world is both under the, the present and the future wrath of God, as all have turned from him. Nobody desires God. None is good. Nobody seeks after God. All have fallen short of the glory of God. But the gospel is that God did something about it. He did something about the human condition, justifying the wicked without defiling or compromising or corrupting his own righteousness by sending his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to die as a sacrifice for the sins of everyone who will trust in him alone for salvation. That's the first point that he establishes. And then in chapter 4, Paul talks about how it's by faith in Jesus Christ that we are reconciled and redeemed. And he illustrates this principle with the life of Abraham. Now, Abraham couldn't have been justified by the law. He couldn't have been justified. You know why? Because he lived prior to Moses. He lived at least 400 years, 400 plus years, prior to Moses even being born. So how could he have been justified by a law that hadn't even been written yet? And what Paul's saying here is that the principle has always been the same. Justification, being forgiven by God, being declared righteous by God, has always laid on the same standard. It's always been based on the same thing. It's always been based on faith in God. He points out that it was Abraham's faith in God that was credited to him as righteousness. Real legitimate faith in Jesus Christ is what renders us justified. So the two just to summarize the two key truths that have been established by Paul as we come into chapter 5 are number 1, humanity is desperately desperately wicked and under the wrath of God with a desperate need to be saved, and number 2, God in his great love provided the means to save. So as Paul continues into the fifth chapter, these are the truths on which the next points will be made. So Paul says, therefore, we have been justified by faith. And because we've been justified by faith, we have three very important things. And the first thing we have is is probably the most important. I'd say without a doubt it's the most important. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at those three words. Peace with God. Now there's a very important implication in those three words. And that is that there was a time when we were not at peace with God. There was a time when you and I were enemies of God. We were at war with him, whether we realized it or not. There was a time when we stood under his wrath, condemned, rather than under his grace and mercy. But by God's grace, through faith in Jesus, we came under his grace and we were spared from God's wrath. Jesus took that wrath upon himself and that's the basis of our peace. Imagine, just imagine for a second that you had a fatal disease, pick one. I mean, there are a lot, so pick one. Cancer, uh, AIDS, you know, whatever. Pick a disease that uh, that would take your life. You had eaten right. You had rested and you had exercised. Those are the three things that you can do to make your body strong against disease. And you'd done all these things, all in an attempt to give your body the strength that it needed to fight this illness. But the doctors finally told you there's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you can do. But imagine that one day you go in for a blood test, and the doctor turns to you and he looks you in the eye and he says, You've been cured. How would you react? What would you do? Would you be somber? Would you be like, uh, oh man, Ooh, what a relief. That's great. Okay, next. Would you be downcast? No, you'd be ecstatic. You'd be, this, this disease isn't going to kill you after all. You wouldn't be able to contain your joy. You wouldn't be able to restrain your excitement. It would feel like the weight of the world was lifted from you, like you could finally breathe again, like you could finally feel at peace again. Friends, the more we understand the seriousness of God's wrath against sin and the more we understand that we deserve nothing but that wrath, nothing but eternal damnation from God, the more we rejoice at the incredible relief, the incredible joy at being at peace and in right standing with God. Now the Greek word for peace is irony, which isn't an exact uh, carry over from the Hebrew word shalom. It, it, it encompasses shalom, but it's it's much broader. The the Greek word has a deeper and, and broader range. One commentator notes that quote its semantic range covers completeness, soundness, welfare, peace. This is much more than just an internal subjective experience. In other words, something you feel one moment, but it's bound to change the next moment. It's not just a, a sense of tranquility. It, you know, these things are part of the package, but it's not just that. The peace that he's talking about here, this peace refers to an external and objective reality. That all the hostility that existed between God and us as a result of our sin has been dealt with and it's been removed. It's been dealt with by him. It's been removed by him. And so thus we are no longer under God's wrath. We are under grace. And what an incredible concept peace must have been to the minds of the the Roman Christians that Paul was writing to here You know, a lot of the time they had to be fearful of the Roman government and the threat of imprisonment or or getting beaten or even dying, being killed was a daily reality. Peace with Rome was never certain for Christians in this time. If the Roman Empire ever felt threatened... And even the slightest bit, they would act swiftly, they would act decisively to demonstrate their supremacy. And for that reason, relations between Christians and the Roman government were kind of shaky. They were unstable, and it left Christians feeling vulnerable and insecure. But peace with God is totally different. It's totally different than that. You know, they might have peace with the Roman government you know, or officials one day, but not the next, depending on the mood of the government. But that's not how it was with God. Peace with God was a feeling of stability, it was a feeling of security. The war was over. The war is over. The animosity is gone. Instead of pouring out his wrath on us, God now pours out his grace on us because we have peace with God as a settled, objective fact. And it's all the work and all the grace of God. See, you and I have all sinned against God. That's one of the points that Paul's made. And we could have worked for 10,000 years doing nothing but good deeds every day, trying to earn our way out of this sin debt that we owed God. And the problem with that, the problem with trying to do all these good works for even 10,000 years, if we could do it for 10,000 years, is that it would, we'd never know if it would be enough. We'd never know if we were good enough. We'd never know how much is enough. How big is this sin debt? We never could have known. If you were to ask the majority of people, are you, are you going to go to heaven when you die? The answer would almost be, uh, almost always be, I hope so, or I think so. How certain does that sound? It's not certain. But if you you were to ask, uh, how long would it take you? Let's say that, that it's unsure. But how long would it take you to work until the point that you actually deserve a place in heaven? How many good deeds would you have to do? Most people would say, same thing. I don't know. Uncertain. Uncertainty. See, those who trust in their good works, those who trust in their good deeds, maybe even those who trust in their religiosity, if they're serious and if they live consistently by such an ideology, they have to remain in a constant state of uncertainty and a constant state, therefore, of fear, knowing that they won't know the answers to these questions until they enter into eternity, which, as far as they know, may or may not involve eternal suffering what a horrifying terrible way to live in such uncertainty have you ever been there do you remember what it's like if if you remember being there do you remember what it's like to have that much uncertainty i i remember the times when i did when i felt so uncertain and it's terrifying that's a dark dark place it's, it's scary, and I hate even thinking about it. Christians who have legitimate faith in Jesus and yet continue to live in a state of fear and uncertainty need to remember that our peace with God is not of our own doing. It's not of our own doing. It's God himself who established. It's God himself who declared peace between himself and those who will repent, turning from their sin, and believe in his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who took our sin upon himself and the wrath that we deserve. And in exchange, he gave us his righteousness. The cross, the shed blood of Christ, and the resurrection, these things all guarantee that our redemption, our reconciliation with God is complete. And that peace has been established between God and his people once and for all by God. Therefore, having been justified. That word justified, by the way, it means declared innocent. It's what we would, uh, it would be synonymous with forgiven. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that we have peace. But Paul doesn't stop there. Yes, we have peace with God. Yes, that's probably the most important thing that we have. But because we have peace with God, he says we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Obtained access. The the Greek word there is really, really cool. Uh, And it's very important and we miss it in English because we don't come from the Roman mind or the Roman culture. In Greek, it actually described the process and the procedures involved in ushering someone into the court of a king, being announced and being given the opportunity to directly address the king. That was the word that they used for that whole process. How cool is that? And that's the word that, that Paul uses to describe what we get with god the implication here is that jesus has ushered us into the king capital k the the capital k king's presence god's presence we've entered into a new territory that had very very restricted access a place called grace it's a place where we have access to address the king to address god It's a place where the values of the world are meaningless. It's a place where there's no more condemnation. It's a place of refuge and security and certainty. It's a place of peace and undefiled love. And I think it's significant to note the use of the word stand here. The word stand implies a permanent and secure position. And it's part of having peace with God that peace has allowed us to stand in a position of righteousness eternal life and grace that has no equal so first by faith we have peace second by peace we have access to this grace in which we stand and third he tells us we have reason to rejoice he continues writing in Romans chapter 5 verses 2 and 5 2 to 5 he says and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. We have reason to rejoice. Now what we might think that that means celebrate, celebrate, or feel a sense of joy, um, we do have that, but the implications go beyond that. Literally translated, this word means to boast. We boast of these things. We boast in hope of the glory of God. And literally, literally translated, that would cause a little bit of confusion. We usually don't think of rejoicing uh, and, and Boasting is exactly the same thing. In fact, it's likely that we'd probably be a little bit uncomfortable with the word boast uh, because it sounds like a negative behavior. We think we, we equate boasting with conceit, right? And like It sounds like we're all stuck up. Like, I'm going to brag about this because I've got it and you guys don't. So I'm just going to get in your face and let you know what I'm all about. You know, whatever. No, it, it's not like that. It might sound like a conceited word, but the reality is that it's kind of ironic, truthfully, that anybody would, uh, would get confused um, about this type of boasting because it's not the same as conceit, because the boasting of, of a true Christian is humble. They're not boasting in themselves. It's not that we have a, a high degree of confidence or certainty of our own goodness. We don't. Rather, it's that we have a very low view of our own goodness, but we have a high view of God's goodness. You see, that's kind of like a seesaw. The higher view you have of your goodness, the more it can level out like how good God is. But the lower your view is of your goodness, the higher your view of God's goodness is usually going to be. Just an observation. And when that's our view, when our view is low, low view of ourselves, high view of God's goodness, we're free to express confidence in God's gift of grace. And thus we can live with a joyful, secure confidence. So what do we rejoice in? Paul says that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now on the surface, it might sound funny that I should mention confidence only to be followed by the word hope, because you usually don't use those two words together. We need to understand that the word hope in a biblical sense is not synonymous with wishful thinking. It's one of those things that just kind of throws us for a loop. Hope does not mean you're wishing for something. It's not a wishing well. I might say, I hope, uh, I, I hope our church grows next year, or uh, I, I hope, I hope you have a nice Christmas, or I, I hope that Caleb has a great freshman year down at Biola next year. And, and you would be correct in pointing out that I'm saying, when I say hope, I'm saying I wish, or you know, just kind of hoping for the best, which implies a varying degree of of uncertainty. But in the Bible, the word hope refers to an expectation of an assured promise. So by faith, we have peace with God. In peace with God, we have access to the grace in which we stand. Because of God's grace, we have reason to boast in the hope of what? Of the glory of God. Listen, you and I were created. To be a living display of God's glory. That's the purpose that we were saved for. To be a living display, living, walking, breathing display of God's glory. The glory of God is when things are right. When things are being done exactly how God desires them to be. Righteousness prevails over wickedness. Sin has no place, no hold on us. Everything exists in holy harmony. The unregenerate nature is completely done away with. All things are made new. And so what Paul is saying here is that we live in anticipation of the day when Christ will set all things right. Knowing that He will. Knowing that He will as He promised that He would one day do people say well if God is all powerful why doesn't he do away with evil and my response to that is aren't you glad he hasn't yet because he promised he will just because he hasn't doesn't mean he won't he's promised there will be a day so we live in anticipation of that day when he makes all things right and there's a joy in knowing that He has given us new life, regenerated our hearts, and that we're a part of Him making all things new now because it means that we can start becoming more and more like Jesus. Being sanctified. That's what sanctified means. And because our peace with Him and our position in Him is His doing, entirely His doing, and is thus immovable and unchangeable, nothing could possibly stand in the way of this promise being fulfilled, not even suffering. And I don't know about you, but that's news that I can rejoice over. It's news that all of us can rejoice over. Nothing's going to thwart God's purposes. If he says you're going to become Christ-like, you're going to become Christ-like. And sometimes, often, that involves suffering. Chuck Swindoll says, I've never known one person, when I ask them, what are the times when you've grown the most? I've never known one person who said it didn't involve difficulties. Suffering is a reality. It's a reality for everyone. And if we take Jesus' words seriously, maybe that's even more true for the believer. In John chapter 15, he told his disciples, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. How can we rejoice in suffering? Because we know that God is sovereign. We know that he's good. And we know that God is using our suffering to ultimately make us hungry for heaven and to make us more and more like Jesus. He's working on our character through all of our circumstances. So when we suffer, we have to remember these truths. And we have to remember that God is is extremely concerned with the personal character and the personal holiness of his people. So because we have faith with God, we have peace. Because we have peace, we have access to God's grace. Because we have access by God's grace, we can rejoice remembering that God's love has been poured out on us and that he's given us his Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to fill us, to transform us, to empower us to give us strength when we're weak, to give us wisdom when we're foolish, to give us comfort when we're in despair. That's how you make it through seasons of suffering and affliction with a stronger faith than you had prior to that season of suffering. And so therefore we can rejoice in suffering and affliction because A, it refines our character to make us more and more like Jesus and B, it proves that we stand in the grace of God when we come out on the other side with a stronger faith than we came into that suffering with. As Chuck Swindoll says, quote, the Holy Spirit living within us is our ever-present guarantee of future victory. Jesus came for the sake of ending the hostility between God and those who would repent of their sin and put their trust for salvation in him alone. That's where peace is found. Christ has come and he offers peace to all who will accept him, to all who will believe in him, to all who will make him Lord of their lives. And that's one of the many, many reasons. It's one of the glorious, one of the most glorious reasons that Jesus stepped out of eternity to take on flesh. And it's one of the many things that Christmas is about. It's not just external. It is that but it's more, it's internal too. And as we get closer to Christmas, can I just encourage you guys and girls to step away and to look away from the chaos and to focus your hearts and your minds on Jesus. Live in his grace. Experience the peace that passes all human understanding. We receive that peace and understanding that we've been reconciled to God and that by His Holy Spirit He gives us the ability to have and to experience peace with Him. And from Him, and we experience that both internally and externally. Even when our circumstances and the chaos around us would dictate otherwise. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we get closer to Christmas, it's so easy for us to focus on all this other stuff, all this junk that causes us to feel anxiety, causes us to feel stress. Maybe for some people it makes them feel alone. For some people it brings back hard memories of Christmases past when they were able to spend time with loved ones. Lord, I pray that our attention would be diverted to you, brought back to you. That we would experience peace, both internally and externally, Lord, because we know that that was one of the reasons you came to live as one of us, to bring peace between us and yourself. We thank you for that, Lord. We know that we could work for 10,000 years And never be at peace with you, no matter how good we might feel, no matter how good we might seem. Only you, Lord Jesus, can clothe us in your righteousness. And we thank you for that. We thank you for becoming like one of us to do that. May you be glorified in our lives as our internal peace flows externally. thousands of people around the world you can go to our website bible study podcasts.org and you can make a donation on the right hand side by clicking on the support box again we do rely on your support and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times god bless you thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus take me deeper!